Please join me in praying. Oh Lord, how grateful I am for your word, that in it we can know you, not just know facts about you, but know you. And I pray that as I preach this morning, you'd open our hearts and give us a desire for a personal experience of you, just like you provided for your servant Moses. Help me now as I preach, Lord, for I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin with an obvious statement, but it's worth reflecting upon. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give away something you don't have in your possession. And I start with that because we're in a sermon series on extending grace, where I believe God has called us as a people to extend the grace of the gospel out to others, to share that with other people. He's called us to be his witnesses in the world. He's commissioned us in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And he's given us this incredible message of grace. But if we don't have it, we can't share it. A very high value of mine that I hope will also be embraced by our whole church, a core value, is that Christianity is about a personal walk with the Lord. It's about a relationship, even more so than anything that's religion. It's about knowing God and being known by Him, by having a real two-directional relationship with Him. I believe He can be known that way. I know Him that way. Many of you do as well. And the Scriptures bear witness to so many others who know God that way. God invites us into a relationship with Him. Now, I know that this is a subjective topic. If I suggest to you that God knows people and you talk to one of them, they will tell you things like, I feel God's presence when, or God entered into this situation in a certain way, or I went for prayer and I got healed and the doctors can't explain it, or I was reading the Bible and there was an inner voice that said, this is true. And it was from outside of me, but it came to me. This and a hundred other experiences are very common to Christianity because God is a relational God. Now, that's totally subjective. And what I like about that is when you're extending grace out in the world and you're sharing your testimony, you're giving witness to God, no one can say, you're wrong. You didn't feel that. You're wrong. Those circumstances didn't happen. And you go, I'm just telling you my story and take it or leave it. You're bearing subjective witness but you are bearing witness, and it's a powerful thing, and God uses it. Now, my text today is the witness that Moses bears to us of how God interacts with him. And I'm going to speak to a larger section of text than what we just had read. So if you want to follow along, a pew Bible will be helpful. It's page 46, Genesis, Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, page 46 in the pew Bibles. And this text is Moses' call. It's also, in some ways, his conversion. It's where he moves from knowing things about God to knowing God personally. It's the place where God moves from being the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, to being your God, Moses, the God of Moses. And so it's as much about his calling as it is about a a type of conversion. And my main point this morning is this. God uses broken people for his purposes. Broken people like you and me and like Moses. But if I say God uses, which God? Who am I talking about? How do you know who God even is? I've just come back from a mission trip to India, and God is a safe word over there. They have tons of them, right? It's generic. It's just, it's like a title for other, beyond, transcendent. But how do you know which one we're talking about? Who is God? Who is the true God? Which God are we discussing here? Only a very small fraction of a percentage of people are atheists, meaning they believe there is no God. 
theist is someone who believes there is a God. An atheist believes there is no God. You just stick the alpha primitive in the front. Like a Gnostic knows something, agnostic knows nothing. So some people are agnostic. They don't know about God, but that doesn't mean they don't believe there is one. An atheist believes there is no God, and they're very rare. There's just too much evidence, and there's too much of a need for us to explain how all this happened. Randomly, by accident, the probability is impossible. There is an other, and most people acknowledge that. But can that other be known? Is he a good other? Is he personal? Can, can you know him personally? And then there's this problem in the God of the Bible in that the God of the Bible is a holy God. He's sinless. He's perfect. And we know that we're not. So how can a holy God be in the presence in a relationship with sinful people? It's the answer to that that gets at grace. It's about an undeserved gift, and I'm going to come back to it. But I want to point something out about God here in the way that he manifests his presence. And he does this throughout the Bible. But you know the story, probably. I think it's even in the cartoon, Prince of Egypt. Although, by the way, if you like that cartoon, check it against the Bible because there's all kinds of extra stuff in there that's not biblical, and it tends to miss some of the important details that are in the Word of God. But there's a bush on fire. It is burning, but it's not consuming the bush. And if you know how fire works, you have to have some source of fuel and oxygen. And if you run out of either, the fire goes out. But the bush just keeps burning. There's a flame, and it's burning and burning and burning, and it's not burning up. There's not ash. It, the bush is still there. And so this is an unusual thing. And God uses fire as a way to manifest his presence. It's helpful because fire has a couple of properties that align with God. For instance, we desperately need fire. It provides heat. It's a cooking source. I don't know if uh, you guys in school have to read Jack London's To Build a Fire. They made me read it when I was in like seventh grade or something. And it's an awesome story. It's a very short story, a ton of illustrations and um, references in it and, and deeper meanings. But the bottom line is a guy tries to cross the Yukon Valley when it's like minus 150 degrees, which everybody that's wise says don't do. And he gets halfway out there and his fingers don't work anymore because he's so cold he can't even light the matches. And the whole thing's about him not being able to build this fire. What happens? Spoiler alert, he dies. His dog lives, but he dies. He needed the fire to warm himself up, and he couldn't get it started. Without fire, we freeze in that situation. However, you don't want to wake up in the middle of the night with your house on fire. In that situation, you die, right? Fire is useful for heat and terribly dangerous. And there's a similarity with the Lord. We need God, and yet, to come into his presence is frightening. What happens here? The Lord sees this bush that's not being consumed. You know, fires are common out there in the desert where he was. You know, dry heat, a lightning, whatever. There's a bush on fire. Huh, that's funny. That one just seems to not be burning. I'm going to go see this thing. And Moses walks over there, and then it says, the angel of the Lord spoke to him from the bush. Moses, don't come any closer. You're on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And then when he says that I'm the God of your fathers, He's terrified, and he averts his eyes. He can't bear to look upon holiness because God's presence is there. And all of a sudden, he realized it, and he was terrified. Just like fire, it's got to be respected, right? We need it, but it can be dangerous. And so here's this sinful Moses coming into the presence of a holy God, or rather, a holy God making his presence made known 
manifesting His presence to a sinful person. That's a frightening thought. Second thing I want to point out before we get into Moses' response to his call is that God is a God of compassion. In verse 7, we learn that the cry of the Israelites has come up to Him, and He is taking pity on their situation. For 400 years, they've been enslaved, and their situation is getting worse. They're being now not only enslaved, but mistreated as slaves. And they're crying out to God, rescue us, rescue us. And he has compassion upon them. And his plan is to send Moses to deliver them. That's his plan. So it's in that situation that we find Moses objecting to this. He he offers five objections. And you really, we only read a small snippet, but you really have to get the whole section, which goes from verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 17 of chapter 4. That whole thing is this interchange by the burning bush. So I'm going to jump to some of the the verses beyond what we read this morning, but I think you'll, you'll pick up what's happening here. So the first thing that happens in verse 11 is Moses says, who am I? God says, I'm sending you to deliver my people. And his natural, very natural response, who am I? Why me? All these people in the world, why me? And what's more, Moses at this point is 80 years old. He's been living in the wilderness for 40 years, tending his father's sheep. He's been a fugitive, right? He murdered, he murdered an Egyptian in defense of some of the Hebrews. And then when, they, when he realized that they weren't happy about this and Pharaoh and others wanted to take his life, he fled to the wilderness. He's been out there tending sheep. I, I accidentally said he's on the lamb, literally. <laughs> I mean, he's tending those sheep and he's hiding out from justice. And he's been out there for 40 years in the wilderness. Why me? I'm an old fugitive. Now, I could give you answers why. Well, one, God prepared you for this task beforehand. You're a Hebrew, but you were born and then handed over to an Egyptian, the daughter of Pharaoh, to be raised. So you've been raised in an awesome education. You speak both languages. You know the Egyptian culture, and yet you're a Hebrew. You identify with them. You have a deep sense of justice, right? He was really proud at the age of 40. He, he, he could have chosen the life of luxury. I'm going to fully be Egyptian. I'm going to move my citizenship. I'm going to live in Egypt. I'm going to be rich because I'm Pharaoh's house. But he doesn't. He identifies with the Hebrews. He goes back to his roots. He's got a sense of nostalgia, maybe. He's sentimental about being a Hebrew, and he identifies with them. So he stands up for them when an Egyptian is mistreating them and ends up killing the Egyptian that was, was doing this. But then his own people don't receive him. Who made you our judge or our ruler? And then he's afraid and flees. So he's very arrogant on the front end of things and, to, and, and had this sense of justice and this desire for his people. I might say, that's who you are. But God doesn't do that. Who am I that you should send me? God's response is nothing. He doesn't say anything about that. His answer is, well, I will be with you. That's it. Who am I? I will be with you. And if you recognize that God is God, and he's on your side, you don't have anything else to worry about. And the New Testament picks this up wonderfully. If God is for us, who can be against us? Really, if, God is, if you're on God's side, you're already on the winning team. He's got all the power, all the knowledge, everything. He can carry you through whatever he's calling you into. That should be enough. Moses should say, okay, I'm in. Let's do this. He doesn't, though, because he's like you and me. He's sinful. He's resistant. He's got questions. In his case, he's old and he's 
you know, maybe he's given up on himself. So he says another thing. What is your name? Who are you? If they ask me who is sending me, what, what do I tell them? God is a mere title. It's not a name. What is your name? What's name yourself? And he gets an answer. And the answer is, I am that I am. This is in verse 13. I am that I am. It's hard to translate, actually, because he takes the verb to be, and he just conjugates it. I'm basically being. I am existence. My name is being. I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. And then he kind of expands it. So he, doesn't, he just says, I am that I am. And then he says, say to the Israelites, I am is sending you. And then he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Although in the Bible, it's a little bit weird because they change the word the third time and they put the Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, but the O-R-D is little, but, but it's a capitalized. If you look at the ESV. And the reason it does that is because the Hebrew Bible is weird. The scholars call this the tetragrammaton, which is a fancy word for saying four letters. Yahweh, the verb to be. Yahweh means I am. So yod Hey vav Hey, or Y-H-W-H, if you transliterate it. Those four letters are the Hebrew word I am, the verb conjugated. But see, they don't want to take the Lord's name in vain. So what they do is they stick the vowels from another word, Adonai, which means Lord, just kind of generic, Lord, Master, Sir. They stick the vowels for that word on the consonants, the tetragrammaton, so that when they're reading the Bible, they come across this new word, Jehovah. So they come across and they see Jehovah, they say Adonai, and everybody knows that they mean Yahweh. I'm not kidding about that. That's how the Hebrew Bible works, because they didn't want to take the name of the Lord in vain, so they just didn't say His name. They just said Adonai, but they meant Yahweh. And the footnote here tells us how that happens. Now, here's the good thing about that. I know that's kind of Bible trivia-ish, but I think it's kind of cool that God says, I am. That's what I am. I am. Jesus would pick up that same language later in the New Testament. He does it seven times in John's gospel, and the people hear that, and they know exactly what he means, and they try to stone him for blasphemy. I am, because God is Jesus. God is Jesus. God is the Father. God is the Spirit. I am. Here's what's great. It's humbling that I am not, and he is, but it's also incredibly freeing. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. There's that word again. We have it derivatively. He is, and in him we have life, but he's in control of everything. So on the one hand, we can't exert our will on certain situations and change the outcome, But on the other hand, we don't have to either. God is going to deliver his people, and he's going to use Moses to do it, and Moses' weaknesses aren't going to stop that from happening. How freeing is that? It gives us real breathing room. Now, he goes on to a third objection. So, who am I? Who are you? And then he says, they will not believe me. At this point, it's direct sass to the Lord, because God has said, go to them, and they they will hear you in the prior chapter. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, they will not believe me. All of a sudden, that fear of the fire is starting to wear down, right? Remember, he was hiding his face. Now, he's like, they will not believe me. He's gotten bold with God. And let that be a caution to all of us. We get so comfortable with him as our, as our personal God that we can just talk to him. We forget we're talking to fire. We're talking to holiness. And here he is acknowledging this. Well, 
Why should I believe you is basically what Moses is saying. And God answers him and gives him three signs. He says, take your staff and throw it on the ground. What's it become? You know the story. It becomes a serpent. Moses runs away from it for fear. He says, take it by the tail. Don't ever grab a snake by the tail, but unless it's this one. He grabs it, it becomes a staff again. He says, put your hand inside your, your cloak. And when he pulls it out, it's leprous, white leprosy. Put it back in and it's healed again. And then he gives him a third sign. He says, when you're there, scoop up some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and it will turn into blood. If they don't believe you because I sent you and I'm with you, maybe these signs will convince them. So he's, he keeps giving Moses help, even though Moses is reluctant. He hasn't gotten angry yet. At that point, I would have been like, hey, listen, but that's me as a sinful person. This is God who's way more patient than we are, patient with Moses. Then in in chapter 4, verse 10, he says this, ironically, I am not eloquent and I am slow of speech. All evidence to the contrary. He's just been jawing away at God quite articulately about all the reasons why he shouldn't go do this task. And now he's saying he's slow of speech? Come on, really? But this is Moses, right? This is what he's saying. And then God answers and says, who made the mouth? Who gave you a mouth? I did. I created you. I gave you the mouth. I will give you the words. Even Jesus said a similar thing when he spoke to his followers in the New Testament. He says in Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 10, verse 19, he says, when you, my followers, are persecuted, you will be dragged before rulers and judges. When that happens, don't worry about what you have to say. Don't plan a speech out. I will put the words in your mouth. I will give you the words to say. Here's, I am providing for his people. I will give you the words. I made your mouth. Don't have to worry about it. Now there's a fifth hesitation, okay? And at this point, the Lord does get angry. Moses simply says, oh God, please send someone else, right? He's bold. And it says God's anger was kindled against him. Now, I don't know what that looked like. Maybe the bush like got bigger and like flamed up and he could feel the heat on his face and remembered where he was. I don't know what that was like, but some kind of a God's anger flared up against him and it, and it quickened him. And he said, here comes your brother Aaron. He'll be rejoicing to see you. I will send both of you, and I'll put words in his mouth too, and you'll be like God to him, and you'll speak my words, and then Aaron will talk to Pharaoh. So there you go. You're still going, Moses, but I'm sending you with your brother. Finally, it ends. Now Moses goes on to do the work, and he starts it. But here's some things about God that we learn from this, and there's a ton in here, by the way. I mean, you could preach five sermons in here and pick up all kinds of attributes of God. This is a great place to go if you want to know who is God. Here's just a couple that I wrote down. One, God exists before anything and will forever. He is outside of the created order. He is the one who existed. It'll blow your mind if you try and think about it too much. He's always been. There was never a time when he wasn't. And there won't be a time when he isn't. He exists. He is holy, sinless, dangerous in that regard. He's without sin and perfect, and he has glory. He initiates. God put the bush situation in place so that Moses would come and respond. God did that. Moses didn't do that. God did that. God initiated way back in the beginning of Moses' story when he was rescued out of the river from certain death. God initiates. God is relational. He's the one who chooses to have relationships with people. He's patient. Five times Moses resists, and five times God provides some extra help beyond what he needs. He equips us for the call. God gets angry. 
He does have emotions. He got, they're just and righteous. He's angry without sin. God doesn't sin, but he got angry because of Moses' resistance. God is a God who gets angry. And God is a God who uses people. I think that's so interesting because he doesn't need to. He doesn't need Moses to go get his people. He doesn't need any of us to do what he wants to do. He is totally competent in his own right. Yet he chooses to work through you and me. That's mind-blowing to think about it. Now, back to the original question I asked. How can a holy God have a personal relationship with sinful people without totally consuming them? How are we not burned up by his presence? Now, if you go back to chapter 3, there's an interesting little thing in verse 2. I don't know if you noticed this, but it said, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned to see, God called to him out of the bush. Well, who's in the bush, God or the angel of God? It says the angel of the Lord was in the bush. And now it's talking as though the angel is God. Can you think of another figure in the scriptures who is God's very presence and speaks for God, but is personally distinct from God? Here's a hint. Jesus, right? He's the Son of God. He's a person, the, the, the second person of the Trinity, and yet is distinct from his Father. But yet, when he speaks, it's God speaking. He speaks on behalf of the Trinity. He's the personal manifestation of God, God incarnate. And he's the mediator and great high priest, as we've already said, who goes between a holy God and sinful man. Now, this, this is debated, but I'm, I'm going with the scholars who suggest that this is an early pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, the Son of God, as the angel of the Lord. There are other places where angels themselves occur, like Gabriel or whatever, making an announcement. And when they make an announcement, they simply say, the Lord says, you will conceive and bear a child. Or the Lord says, such and such. Here, it just says, an angel, the, the angel of the Lord was in the bush, and then it's, all of a sudden, it's God spoke from the bush. I think this is Jesus interceding for us. I think he is the answer. I know he's the answer of how sinful people can be in the presence of a holy God. He's provided that for us. Jesus makes it possible, and he's the one who stands between us. So he makes us worthy to stand in God's presence. He's the one who takes the heat of the fire. He's the one who takes the wrath and the anger of God in our place on the cross so that we can have this relationship with a holy God. He's the one who does this for us, and that we then become, over time, more and more like God, and we grow into holiness. It's an incredible, incredible gift and blessing. It's grace. It's undeserved. Now, here's my application. I want to encourage you to pursue a personal relationship with God, this God of the fire, this holy God, but this God with all these incredible attributes. And I'm not afraid to say, pursue the experience of God. But I have to caution you, our faith is not based on feeling, but it's also not just facts. It's not just head knowledge about who God is. It requires a personal interaction with Him. And it might be that you go for prayer and you feel something. It might be that you get healed. It might be when you come to the Lord's table, your eyes are opened in the breaking of bread and you go, God is here. I think there's a thinness along this communion rail between heaven and earth because I see it. I see people experience God when they receive his body and blood. There are a hundred different ways this happens, more, a thousand different ways. And you look down through the church ages, you see how Christians have experienced God and moved from knowing about him 
to knowing him personally. Their heart was strangely warmed, or they heard a scripture and it jumped off the page at them. Whatever it is, pursue a personal relationship with him and don't settle for anything less than that. Ask him to come and move in your life. He'll answer that prayer. And then once you've had that thing, now you have grace to extend. And so go extend grace to others. Tell them, hey, this is what God did in my life. This is what I experienced. This is how I felt him. Or these were the circumstances, and can you believe this, this, and this all lined up? Not a chance. That's coincidence. It's God. And they'll go, no, it's not. And you go, take it or leave it. I was blind, and now I see. It's all I know. That's your testimony. You can extend grace because you've met God. Don't just know about him. Know him personally. Would you pray with me now to the God who is here in our midst? Lord, I pray that you would stir up a desire in our hearts for more of you, not just knowledge about you, but knowledge of you, that we would feel your presence, that you would open your word to us, that just like Moses, we would hear your call. Lord, help each one of us figure out what the work is you've given us to do, and may we be pleased to do it because we know you are with us. Jesus, thank you for promising to never leave us or forsake us, and for the person in here this morning who's thinking, I've never had any experience like that. I pray that you would speak to them in whatever way they need to hear, that you would meet them this morning. Thank you, Lord. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. I want to invite you now to kneel if you are able. Otherwise, you may be seated as we enter into a time of prayer for the church and for the world.